This is the Journal of American History podcast for December 2015. Edward E. Curtis IV is Millennium Chair of the Liberal Arts and Professor of Religious Studies at Indiana University, Purdue University at Indianapolis. He's the author editor of several books, including Muslims in America, A Short History, which was named one of the best 100 books of 2009 by Publishers Weekly. A former NEH fellow at the National Humanities Center, he's been awarded Carnegie, Fulbright, and Menon Fellowships. Professor Curtis is also founding co-editor of the Journal of Africana Religions. He joins us today to talk about his superb article, which appears in the December 2015 issue of the Journal of American History, My Heart is in Cairo, Malcolm X, the Arab Cold War, and the Making of Islamic Liberation Ethics. Edward, thanks so much for taking the time to do this. Thanks, Ed. I'm really delighted to be with you. Likewise. So uh, let's start by thinking back a bit to the autobiography of Malcolm X, which I have enjoyed teaching, as I'm sure you and many listeners have over the years, um, a book that students find you know, so compelling. And the autobiography certainly takes readers into some of his significant changes, evolution, I guess we could say, in his understanding of and then living out of Islam. Uh, but for listeners that, that maybe aren't so familiar with Malcolm's life, can you often listeners a kind of brief tour of these changes and then take us into uh, Malcolm or uh, Shabazz's experience in the Middle East during this very important trip that you focus on in 1964? So um, Malcolm X or Malcolm Little, uh, as he was uh, born in 1925 in Omaha, Nebraska, has has given us um, one of the great works of American you know, literary history. I, I, I echo exactly your sentiments that as long as I have read the autobiography of Malcolm X with other people, it remains a wonderful text to teach, to talk about. And I find people from different backgrounds really get into the book. And yeah. so, you know, I think it's still, for me, it is still the historical work to be read and shared, you know, in, in, by historians in history classes and, in, and, uh, and among people just interested in history. That said, you know, our understanding of the autobiography can be enhanced through careful historical research because you know, Alex Haley did an awful lot to shape that autobiography. And it is an autobiography that falls in line with the great Western tradition of, of autobiography, you know, from St. Augustine until today. It is a conversion narrative, except the autobiography of Malcolm X is a double conversion narrative. First, you see the conversion of a, a seeming hoodlum, although the, the autobiography, you know, underplays the extent to which Malcolm X was already a part of the Garveyite world of his parents. That is a world in which the fate of the, the global fate of black people was seen to be linked, no matter whether you were an, an African-American in the United States or uh, a black Jamaican, someone in Africa or a black Britain, you know, Malcolm X grew up among people who thought deeply 
that I mean his parents who thought deeply that the that the fate of black people all around the world was linked. So uh, the autobiography underplays that a bit, and we now know that from from you know our careful historical work. But then we get to that great moment when uh, Malcolm X converts to the Nation of Islam, established in 1930 by W. D. Farad Muhammad and led by Elijah Muhammad, who had who had been born um, 1897 in Sandersville, Georgia, Elijah Poole, and uh, this this great and perhaps most popular of all Muslim movements after World War II attracted uh, Malcolm's attention, and then he helped to propel it to um, national attention. I think without his, you know, without his energy, his vision, his organizing, the nation of Islam probably would not have become the most popular Muslim movement. And that's of any movement, by the way, of Sunni movement, that is, you know, the sort of orthodox, so-called orthodox Islam, or, or new religious movement like the nation of Islam. So it becomes that. And then the autobiography, you know, takes us spectacularly to Mecca in 1964. It, it tells us, first of all, it doesn't give us the full range of transition that uh, Malcolm X was already going through by the late uh, 50s, the early 1950s. By that time, even though he was the national spokesman for the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, uh, Malcolm X was already questioning some of his teachers' conclusions. First, he, he started. He, he was already questioning the idea that Islam um, was a only a religion for black people. You know, and he and you know because for Elijah Muhammad, being Muslim and being black were one and the same thing. But he starts to by nineteen by the early nineteen sixties, even before he separated. From the nation of Islam, he begins to say publicly, you know, in Islam, we don't judge a person or perhaps he said a man by the by the color of his skin, you know, but but by his character. So he was already he was also very frustrated with what he perceived as Elijah Muhammad's lack of of activism um, of, um, you know, he thought he was too passive. And then finally, as the the, the autobiography very much uh, presents the, the, the break from Elijah Muhammad um, as a concern with Elijah Muhammad's moral failings is, you know, as a philanderer, as someone who had fathered many children out of wedlock while also issuing prophetic commandments not to have sex out of wedlock. So for all those reasons, Malcolm uh, X became very frustrated. And as, as many historians will remember, after the assassination of John Fitzgerald Kennedy, November 1963, Malcolm uh, famously calls that the chickens coming home to roost. And, and uh, Elijah Muhammad is so upset because the country is in mourning. He doesn't want to be, you know, he's willing to question the racism in the country, but he is a very savvy operator. And so uh, he, he silences Malcolm. And then that, that's the final straw. Uh, uh, Malcolm X becomes Malik or Malik al-Shabazz over the next year. Um, he finally, it takes months, but he finally declares his independence from Elijah Muhammad and says, and, and, and through his many contacts, contacts that he had already been developing from the 1950s with Muslims from abroad, he arranges to make uh, the pilgrimage or the hajj uh, to Mecca. And that is the moment that is 
portrayed so poetically uh, in the autobiography and also, by the way, in Spike Lee's film. And I think that's in our collective memory, or at least in some of our collective memory, that, that seems to be the pinnacle of, of Malcolm X's sort of spiritual development. My article argues that it was not so much Mecca or only Mecca that was at the center of Malik al-Shabazz's spiritual life. It was also Cairo. This is an, uh, a, an assertion that I would like to sort of emphasize and be added to our common understanding of who Shabazz was in his last year and what he represented. First of all, his in his last year, he articulated an idea that he had already developed as a member of uh, the Nation of Islam. And that is the idea that a religion isn't a real religion unless it liberates black people from racist oppression, both at home and abroad. And that was that idea stuck with him throughout all of his spiritual transitions. And so even though I mean, there's a very funny moment in the autobiography, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, in which he's on Mount Arafat, you know, he's he's um, he's supposed to be seeking forgiveness for his sins. And um, he continues to talk to all of his fellow pilgrims about the hell that the black man is getting in America. Uh, I mean, even at the sort of pinnacle of his spiritual experience in Mecca, he never leaves behind that commitment to, to black liberation. And so, uh, so Malcolm X, uh, as he becomes Malik Shabazz, he, something stays the same as well as changing. And what, and what stays the same is this commitment. In what the article reveals is that for, for one reason or another, the autobiography does not cover as much of Malik Shabazz's final year um, as we need to know about in order to understand his politics. So as, as Shabazz returns to the, to the Middle East after he had already been on Hajj to Mecca, to, on the pilgrimage to Mecca, he lands in Cairo and he is now or was then the guest of uh, the Egyptian government, which agrees to train him in Islamic studies at the sort of division of Al-Azhar University, which is one of the oldest and most prestigious universities uh, in the world. Now, as he, as he enters that world, uh, one of the main assertions of my article is that he also enters the world of the Arab Cold War. When we only had the autobiography and the public speeches of uh, Malcolm X, we did not know as historians, the, uh, the scholarly community did not know as much as we do know now, because in the interim, in the past uh, decade or so, uh, Malcolm X's personal diaries from 1964 have um, come to light, and they are held at the Schomburg um, which is a division of the New York Public Library. Those are those diaries were very important to the making of Manning uh, Marable's award-winning biography of Malcolm X, 
And um, I use them as well, and in some ways uh, use them a bit differently than, than Marable does, um, because they give us this unprecedented picture of Shabazz's day-to-day reality as he's spending mu- much of 1964 abroad. And so one of the things we learn about him that we did not know from the autobiography is how much training he underwent as a Muslim missionary, both in uh, Egypt and later in Saudi Arabia. That's one of the things we learn. Two, uh, we learn that he records in his diary when he performs the regular prayers of prostration, you know, the prayers in which uh, Muslims face uh, the Kaaba, the black box in Mecca, and bow their bodies uh, in submission to God, you know, five times a day. And so we, we, we know that he's doing that, he, but he doesn't talk in his uh, personal diary a lot about what many of us would think of, might think of as religious or spiritual matters. Because for him, a real religion, and this is a message he tells his audiences throughout the Middle East and in Europe and in the United States, a real religion is ethical at its very center. That if a religion isn't ethical, it's not a sincere religion. If a religion is only the thing, is only the performance of, of personal rituals, if it's private and not public, if it doesn't have something to say about the concerns, the social and political concerns, and, and particularly the oppression of people of color in Latin America, Africa, and Asia, then for him, it is, an, it is not a real religion. Or as, as he is in Egypt he finds a definition of Islam which parallels his own sense of what a real or an authentic religion should do. And that is the version of Islam being promulgated by the Islamic authorities in Egypt who are under the authority of Gamal Abdel Nasser. Gamal Abdel Nasser is a figure that is you know, central not only to world history in the 20th century, but who was very personally important to Shabazz. I mean, even though uh, it would be much, it it would be going too far to say that he somehow thought of him in the same light as he did once, uh, as he thought of Elijah Muhammad uh, as a prophet. Nevertheless, Gamal Abdel Nasser modeled for Malcolm X what it meant to be a true Muslim. And this is exactly what he said in Egypt. So, Nasser arose to world fame in 1956 uh, in the Suez Crisis when he faced down uh, the invasion of Israel, the British, and the French, which in an event that is oftentimes seen as the sort of last last gasp of European colonialism in the in the Middle East. Uh, he was aided by uh, President Eisenhower, who was absolutely livid that he had not been affor- informed ahead of time that the invasion was happening as the British and French uh, took over the, the Suez Canal. And President Eisenhower basically forced the British and French to uh, to withdraw. And after this, uh, Nasser stock, not only as an advocate of Arab nationalism, but also of the non-aligned movement against colonialism all over the world, his stock rose a great deal. And he became, you know, he was world famous. And his version of politics was an Arab nationalist one that asserted that all the Arab people were one people and that they should unite under a socialist government that would advance the interests of the people. And that ideology 
was incredibly effective over the following two years. By 1958, Nasser had united Syria and, with Egypt in what was called the United Arab Republic. Uh, the Hashemite regime in Iraq, um, which was supported by the British, was overthrown. President Eisenhower had to send troops when some of Nasser's allies attempted to overthrow uh, the Lebanese president, Camille Shamaoun. And so there was a great deal of fear among the um, still existing monarchies, particularly Saudi Arabia, that Nasserism um, would spread throughout this revolutionary socialism and Arabism would spread throughout the region. So Nasser at that time, you know, is it's hard to underestimate to what extent by the late 1950s, he was already a household name in Harlem, for example, where Malcolm X was already a part of an international world of intellectuals that sought the freedom of people of color. This is the same Nasser who then hosted Malcolm X even before 1964 when he visited Egypt in, in, uh, in 1959. Okay. Uh, that was his first, his first trip. So Nasser, as part of his um, the sort of cultural, the expanding cultural power, he also nationalizes all the Islamic educational institutions in Egypt, including Al-Azhar University. And the Saudis, the Saudi regime is very frightened by this. And in response, they hurry up their own plans for an Islamic university in Medina, which will train missionaries in their particular school of Islamic thought and which will pose or which will put the Saudis in the position of being um, sponsors of Islamic missionary work all over the world. And so we have these competing you know, missionary forces. On the one hand, a more conservative, pro-monarchy, very socially conservative version of Islam being promulgated in Saudi Arabia and an, a socialist uh, and progressive form of Islam being promulgated um, out of Al-Azhar University and the Egyptian government. Mm -hmm. And Malk and Shabazz, uh, as you point out, really navigates this this uh, tense terrain in very interesting ways, right? That's exactly right. I mean, when I, I published on Malcolm X before, but I had not, I did not have the benefit um, back in the 90s of having seen his personal diaries. And I didn't know the extent to which Shabazz was already aware of these tensions and very um, intentionally attempted to be friends with, make allies with both sides of the conflict, even though I think that the diaries clearly show him favoring um, the diaries and some of his correspondence favoring Nasser's side in the conflict. But he can't afford to make enemies. He needs the Saudis' support for his burgeoning Muslim um, congregation in New York called the Muslim Mosque Incorporated. Um, he um, he wants their support. He sees them as important to Islam. They are, after all, uh, the custodians of the of the two holy places, both Mecca and Medina. You know, and and so um, those are very important to to Muslim identity all over the world and to religious practice. And so he doesn't like make make enemies of it, but he sees Nasser's approach to liberation as being the one that is the most Islamic, because 
it is Nasser who is willing to, as he puts it, you know, want for other people what he wants for himself. And for him, that the Islamic ethics of liberation are at the heart of what it means to be a true Muslim. And you, uh, you write uh, also, Edward, and these are your words, that uh, Shabazz embraced a dual identity as a Muslim preacher and black liberation activist. So the, the, the politics and uh, the, the religion are, are entangled completely, aren't they? They are entangled. I mean, and he he's um, they don't they're for him. They're not contradictory. I I previously thought that they were that they were contradictory, but I changed my mind after reading the letters and the and the diaries. And he sees his burden as double. You know, he sees his mission as twofold. And on the one hand, he wants to build up that active Muslim community uh, across uh, the United States, but starting in New York. And on the other hand, he wants to unite across all religious sectarian lines with other people of color who are willing to challenge what he considers to be, you know, colonialism, not just abroad, but also at home in the United States. And, and, and that's, the, that's the, the dual mission that he, that he pursues until, you know, he's assassinated in February of 1965. As he is doing so, there are there are some he makes some confusing or statements that were at one time confusing to me. Let me put it that way, where he says, you know, the problem of black people go beyond religion. But as I examine those now in the article, I see that I see that um, as saying that the problems of black men uh, and women go beyond a religion that is private and personal and you know ritualistic um that does that is not let's say a religion that is not ethical he is responding to reporters who want him to practice religion in the polite um you know way in which it was expected to be practiced in the 1950s and 60s sometimes in the United States which is something you do on the weekends and doesn't interfere with the rest of your life and something that you don't bring into the public square and he thought that that would be a very ineffective um form of religion, just as uh, he did when he was once a member of Elijah Muhammad's Nation of Islam. So in light of, of reading all of the evidence, I came to see that as, as a kind of his comments, his criticisms of a particular form of religion, which was the most popular form of religion or the commonly understood version of religion in the United States and Europe, which, is, which sees um, at that time, at least, in which many people saw a, a stark division between you know, secular and religious life. And thank you. That was wonderful. And you, you also uh, talk about, however, that, that uh, his relationship to particular groups uh, of thought and people in the Middle East uh, was, and these are your words, was not an uncritical one. So he he also had some arguments within the Islamic world as well, didn't he? That's right. He he really favored Nasser's um, what what we might call a structural uh, approach to solving um, oppression, including racism. So that the, in order for there to be real social change, it hap- it had to happen for Shabazz on an institutional and a structural level. It just it couldn't happen at just a personal level. Thus, he disagreed with the political, with some of the political beliefs of the Muslim brothers in Egypt 
and some uh, members of groups that were associated with the Muslim Brothers in the United States and in Europe who thought that a mass religious conversion would transform society in the same way that, uh, that some evangelical Christians think that a mass religious conversion um, can uh, reform society. And that, and that is the, the, it's the, what we call sometimes the miracle motif. And, and the idea is that if you can sort of, in your heart, get right with God, whether you're a Muslim or a Christian, uh, doesn't really matter in this case, right, that you get right with God and that that will uh, purify you of your uh, problems or your sins. And then it, that kind of will extend, that new purity will extend to your family and then to your community and to your state and then to your nation and then to the world. And that was exactly how Muslim, the Muslim brothers, or at least some of them, like Saeed Ramadan, was a very prominent uh, leader of the Muslim Brothers in Europe, how he thought um, that racism would be solved. So you don't take a structural or an institutional approach to, 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 to confronting racism. Instead, you, you just convert everyone to the proper form of Islam, and then if they are practicing Islamic religion uh, in the right way, then racism will simply disappear. And uh, Malcolm X would have none of that. He would have he he would have none of that. Yeah, that's that's very well put. And Edward, do you? Uh, I mean, maybe this is simply goes with with the territory, given what what he was trying to do. But he seems in the autobiography and um, in in some of what you've written as well to paint a kind of remarkably rosy and idealistic picture of of the Arab world. He he must have seen. Uh, realities that troubled him were these simply uh, not crucial for him to engage given uh, what his agenda was or does he just kind of have this reflexive uh, somewhat naive picture of the political and human rights realities of, of the Arab world well, that's a great question. I, first of all, I don't think there's one thing that uh, Malcolm X was not, and he was not naive. I mean, what comes across as one studies and gets to know him better and better, both through the living memories of people who knew him, but also through all the historical documents, is that he is carefully thinking about every move he's making. And so one of the things, for example, that my, uh, that my article reveals is the correspondence that he writes at the end of November. And, and this is where the title of the article comes from. Uh, the, the, he writes two letters, one to the uh, le religious leaders in Saudi Arabia, one to the religious leaders in Egypt. And he, he tells them he's maintaining those good relationships with both. But he says that you know he believes that the most progressive forces of Islam are in uh, Cairo. And he wishes Gamal Abdel Nasser luck with his modernization product because he pr project the modernization project because he sees a need for uh, for modernization in gender relations, for example, the, the the social position and opportunities of women in the Arab world. He sees he sees that as a problem that needs to be improved, and he he thinks that Nasser has a solution for that. And he and in other ways he he. he most certainly is willing to call out the various uh, problems of, of the Arab world. And, but he says that the, 
he says to his to his friends in Egypt, I still think it's important to keep up my good relations with uh, people in Saudi Arabia. My heart is in Cairo, he says. But please, but but he tells his his allies that please know that I'm intentionally keeping up these good relations. That that kind of savvy dealing with two uh, major regional powers indicates that you know Malcolm X was very intentional about uh, the way in which uh, he was dealing with every single decision that he was making in that last year. So so why then from 1959 until 1965 does he seem to paint a a rosy or idealistic picture of the Arab world? Well. Part of that, I mean, can be understood in the context of a, a, a type of Orientalism, or let us say anti-Arab, anti-Muslim um, thought in the, um, not only in white America, but also in black America, that, that saw Arabs as somehow different from and uh, opposed to and even oppressive of black Africans. That, um, that, that is a trope that, that Malcolm X always wanted to challenge, first of all. Uh, second of all, Saudi Arabia was really taking it on the chin in the black press because they, um, when in the 1950s, they still had not officially banned slavery. And so it was seen as a, uh, as a very um, racist uh, country and one that, you know, and that was getting in the way of um, Islam. All of Islam was being uh, tarred, if you will, with um, by you know by that by the presence of of slavery in in Saudi Arabia, but but finally there's a more positive reason why Malcolm X painted a, a rosy picture of of the Middle East, and that was because from um, when he went there first in 1959 and later on, he kept seeing all of these people of African descent in very prominent positions. He kept seeing that people who had had humble backgrounds, people like Anwar Sadat, the vice president of Egypt, the son of a black Sudanese mother, you know, he saw them achieve a kind of um, climbing up the social ladder that was not possible in his own country. And, and he did not see a contradiction because all of these people of African descent were also speaking Arabic and participating in an Arabic language environment. He saw evidence for the, the, the black, Arabic, and Muslim kind of world that he had already been imagining existed before he ever set foot in the Middle East. And so when he visited Sudan, when he visited the Hejaz or the western part of Arabia, when he was in Egypt, he just had too many interactions with too many what he would call impressive uh, people of color to somehow conclude that Arab society was by definition racist. Later on, in the 1960s, he recognized that there was anti-black racism in Arab cultures, and he was able to balance, and he, he criticized the Muslim brothers for not taking that on. But at the same time, um, he was always convinced that, it, it, at least from the available evidence, it seems that he was always convinced, and in a sincere, in a sincere way, that that black people had an honest shot of making something of themselves in a way that they did not in the white world. That's fascinating, Edward. Thank you for that for that response. But let me uh, <clears throat> ask you one one final question, uh, and, and that is, what's what's remained 
in the African American religious world of uh, Shabazz's commitment to uh, this ethical religion of Islam uh, connected uh, across the waters? Is there a, a particular group or person uh, that has continued to articulate this in effective ways? Well, there's a particular genre, and it's hip-hop. In many ways, Malcolm X became the patron saint of a socially aware and Afrocentric hip-hop that incorporated Islamic symbols, and that was really very important to the to the origins of hip-hop as a major uh, genre, not just here in the United States, but across the Black Atlantic, in Africa, in the Middle East, and all over the world, where the symbol of Malcolm X um, is an important does important work for those who imagine that um, that real ethical action and that real religion, whether it's Christian or Islamic or what have you, that it is tied to the liberation of black people and that the liberation of black people um, is an essential component of um, being an ethical person in the world. So I think so I think we look in part at just a number of people in, 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 in hip hop who have continued that legacy. And that might surprise some of your listeners, I'm not sure, but who, who may think of religion in terms of denominations or, you know, or, or congregations. But, you know, religion um, exists in many cultural forms, and that includes our popular music. So I would look there first. And I, if you, I mean, nothing is more important, it seems to me, no cultural form is more important in understanding our current moment than uh, than hip hop music and and hip hop culture. So, so that's the first place I'd look. Thank you, thank you. I've been talking today with Edward E. Curtis the Fourth, who is a Millennium Chair of the Liberal Arts and Professor of Religious Studies at Indy University, Purdue University, Indianapolis. He's the author of My Heart Is in Cairo. Malcolm X, The Arab Cold War, and the Making of Islamic Liberation Ethics, which appears in the December 2015 issue of the Journal of American History. Edward, thank you so much for this wonderful podcast. It's been a delight. Ed, it's um, always a pleasure uh, to speak with you. Thank you. This podcast is produced by the Journal of American History, the leading scholarly publication and the journal of record in American history. Support the journal by becoming a member of the Organization of American Historians. To join, call us at 812-855-7311 or visit us online at www.oah.org. In addition to receiving the journal four times a year, OAH members have access to a growing number of member benefits, ranging from discounts on a wide variety of insurance products to discounted subscriptions to the ACLS Humanities eBook Library to reduce registration fees for the annual meeting held every spring. Thank you for listening to the Journal of American History podcast. Please join us in March for our next episode. If you have any comments or questions, please send an email to jhcast at oah.org.